Okay, welcome everyone to week seven of our series, Committed Marriage. In just a bit, I'll give some introductory comments that you can take notes on if you choose to. And then on page 15 is session seven for the notes on the DVD session. So if you want to turn there and then on the back side of page 14, perhaps, take some other notes. And I remind you that next Wednesday we do not meet because of Thanksgiving. And then we'll have our final three sessions, sessions 8 through 10. After that, we'll end on December the, the 12th. And throughout our series, we're looking at six commitments to a reconciliation lifestyle. And we have looked at four of those six. Tonight, we're going to look at the fifth. Don't try to write these down. I'm just going to go through them quickly. If you want to catch up on sessions you missed, we have them recorded on our website, and I'm happy to share these slides with you, give you these slides as well, so that you can write them down. But the commitments that we've looked at thus far are, number one, we'll give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. We'll come clean and deal honestly with our sin, weakness, and failure. Second commitment is we'll make growth and change our daily agenda. We'll work together to build a sturdy bond of trust. We'll commit to building a relationship of love, we saw last week. And now, tonight, commitment number five. We'll deal with our differences with appreciation and grace. Men and women are different by design. And I experienced this this past week when I was gone uh, Thursday through Saturday, and I was in uh, Florida, at, in Clearwater, Florida, uh, partly visiting the campus of Clearwater Christian College. If you were here on September 16th at our church, on Sunday, September 16th, Jack Clem, the new president there, spoke, and I mentioned that our daughter Lainey is considering going there, so I'm checking that out as thoroughly as I can. And they also have, uh, every November, a golf outing fundraiser. So I was there on Friday for their golf out. Now, uh, I'm not a golfer. Some of you know that. I golf uh, maybe two or three times a year. I think this uh, golf outing was my second time golfing in 2012. But it was uh, uh, for a fundraiser, for a good cause, and it was 75 degrees in, uh, in Clearwater as well. But... It was a, a tournament, and in these tournaments, if you're familiar with them, they'll have uh, some holes designated for the longest drive hole. So on that particular hole, if you, you need to hit it in the fairway, and they have a, a stake out there, and if you hit it past where the stake was, you take the stake, you move it to where your ball is, you write your name on there, and you're the longest drive, at least to that point. And they'll have closest to the pin on a uh, par three hole and all that. So we're on one of these longest drive holes. Now... For me, as I say, I don't golf much, and I don't golf well when I do. And 18 holes, usually about three times, I will hit the ball straight and, and long for me. Three out of 18. So we're on this one hole, and it happens to be one of my three. I hit it straight, it's in the fairway, and it turns out it's the longest drive hole. And there's my ball past the flag. So there I am with our group, and we are high-fiving, and we go to grab that flag to put it where my ball is, 
And when we pick up the flag, it says on it, Women's Longest Drive Pole. <laughs> so, <laughs> I put it back. But I just want you to know I drove that chick by about 20 yards, all right? <laughs> now, there is, there is a women's tee, if you're familiar with golf. They get, they get a bit of a head start as, as well. Were you on the women's field? <laughs> I was not on the women's field. But I say that because, you know, why are there women's teams? Well, it's because we're different by design. You know, why are there uh, women's sports and, and men's sports? Because God has made us in a number of ways, including physical strength, different by, by design. Now, that fact that we are different and designed to be that way is, is obvious, but it's not always welcome. It's certainly not always welcome in our secular society, where we are attempting and have been for the last 40 to 50 years, certainly since the 60s and the what I'll call radical feminist movement, attempting to eradicate every difference that we can between men and women. And just, and, and I mean this sincerely, I just want you to think about it. But one of the ways in which those distinctions are broken down is in one of the most obvious differences between men and women, and that is in reproduction. You say, well, how do you break that, how do you break that down? Well, you make uh, pregnancy a non-issue a non by allowing the end of a pregnancy by choice and by demand. And that's why this is such an important issue for the radical feminist movement, whose objective is to have absolute equality rather than what the Bible talks about is spiritual equality and, to use a fancy term, ontological equality. That is, we are the same, we are equal in who we are, in our, in our being, in our standing before God. But God, by design, has made us different in terms of our roles. Now, most of us would abhor what I said about the desire to eliminate uh, all distinctions in the pursuit of absolute equality. But nevertheless, uh, we despise differences ourselves. Not in the same way that the radical feminists do, but you see it in our relationships also. You all familiar with Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, Henry Higgins, trying to change Liza Doolittle, and he says famously, why can't a woman be more like a man? Well, there's a good reason a woman's not more like a man, nor should she be, because God has made us different by design. And in our marriages, we need to appreciate those differences that God has given us by design. God has made us different. Genesis 1 and 2, God institutes marriage to be between males and females. That ought to be obvious as well. But we live in a day in which it's not obvious. It's not obvious to our uh, government, and it's not obvious to many people, including, unfortunately, professing Christian people. God instituted marriage to be between males and, and females. And in so doing, at the beginning of human history, he assigned different roles to men and women. Leading for men, supporting for women, providing for men, nurturing for women, 
And these differences show up in practical, everyday ways in our lives. I'll just give you one general way that you see these differences between males and, and females. That the women tend to be more relational, more relationally oriented than men. And men are more task-oriented. Relational versus task-oriented. Now, how does that show up? shows up lots of ways. One is like this. Your wife says to you, um, let's go shopping. Those are dreaded words if you're a man. And the reason they're dreaded words is because you know she's not really shopping for anything in particular. You, on the other hand, are task-oriented. When you do something, including shopping, you are on a quest. You want to conquer shopping. And so you say to her, what do you need to buy? And she says, oh, and she rattles off about 10 or 15 things, some of which she might need, some of which your daughters might need, She doesn't really care. She just wants the environment and the relationship and the experience. And you, as a man, want to conquer this thing. So you badger her and you say, well, what are we going to get? What are we going to come away with? And she says, I need a blouse. And you want specifics. If you're going to kill this blouse and bag it, then you've got to know what color, what size, all of that. And so you're asking for color and size, and you go into that mall on a hunt. She's not on a hunt. She's having, she's having an, an experience. And that's because women tend to be more relationally oriented, just enjoying the environment, enjoying the togetherness, and men tend to be more task, practically oriented. And so it shows up in ways as practical as uh, a shopping event. God made us different by design. And in addition to that, our environment shapes those differences. So, from the outset, as a male, as a female, God has made us different for his good purposes. That shows up in a myriad of ways. But then we each come from different uh, upbringings. And so our environment now shapes the way those differences show up in our lives in particular. So, if you're somebody who grew up as an only child, and you marry someone who grew up in a large family. So you're already different by design, male and female, but now those differences are going to be channeled into the experience of being in a family where you were the object of everybody's attention as an only child versus you had to fight for everything, you had to talk loud if you wanted to get over the din at dinner, and you bring that into your relationship. And that's stuff that you're going to have to Jim and Carol, you know any people like I just, I just described? Or might, one might come from a well-off or fairly well-off background, another from a, a poor background, another where the family was very active together, they were always doing stuff, and your spouse may have had a fairly passive, we just kind of stay home, we enjoy each other in the house, we make do with uh, what we can figure out to play in the backyard and that kind of thing. Well, this is all true of every marriage. You come in male and female, already different, and then those differences can be intensified by the environment that you were reared in. So for Kim and and me. Now, I thought Kim was going to be in here, but she's not, is she? Oh, cool, I'll talk about her. (laughs) But this is true, uh, this is certainly true for for us. Uh, I... uh, 
was throughout high school and early adult years just on the move all the time. And so Rich and I were in a uh, young adult, well, just an adult, we were young adults, uh, floor hockey league, um, softball teams, going to see the Tigers, the Red Wings, just always going places, always doing stuff. And Kim, on the other hand, was, was not like that. She didn't go a lot of places growing up. She didn't care about going a lot of places. So I'm dragging her along to these places when we're dating and in our, our early marriage, and we had, to, we had to work through that. Now, the fact that she came from such a simple background made me look like a hero just taking her anywhere because I just seemed to know everything about, about the world because she knew nothing about the world because she'd never been in it. And when I would bring Taco Bell, that was a big deal to her. She, wasn't, she didn't even do Taco Bell. So I loved this girl because she was beautiful and sweet and Taco Bell is really cheap cause, as well. <laughs> But we still joke about some of the phrases that she used. We still remember them 27 years later. She's got a whole number of I told her I want to write a book about her isms and little sayings. But at one point, we were talking about how I wanted to do so much stuff and she not so much, and we had to find some kind of compromise with that. And she just says to me, Kenny, I love home so much. That's what she says. Kenny, I love home so much. And I still remember that, that that's just her mentality. She, she grew up at home, she loved home, she loves home, and she's created our home to be a place that, uh, that I love and our girls love as well. But that's just her mentality. And so we had to navigate our way through that. Why? Because we're made different, but also because we brought different environmental experiences into our relationship. Now, get this. The fact that I was raised in the family that I was raised in, and the fact that Kim was raised in the family she was raised in, and then you in your families, and then you come together in marriage, those different backgrounds are not by accident. They also are by God's design. And you need to understand that those environmental factors that you bring into your marriage influenced greatly by your upbringing, are by God's design. In fact, notice what God says in Acts chapter 17, in verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he, God, determined the time set for them, and notice this last verse, and the exact places where they would live. So nobody was born into a particular place outside of God's plan. And you had the upbringing you had with its good stuff and its bad stuff and its ugly stuff. And your spouse had the same thing. And you bring that now to your marriage and you were made male and female different by design and in your upbringing. God has made you still further different by His design. And God intends for those differences to be used in your sanctification. Sanctification, the continual process of being set apart and becoming more like Christ. And so God intends the challenges 
that are related to your differences, both just by being male and female, but also by the environment that you were raised in, God intends those differences to be part of your sanctification. So that means you look at those things. And you don't say, if this person were different, everything would be fine. Different than they are. They are different. And they're different in a way that God has designed to make you more like Christ. And so, God made us different. Our environment has shaped our differences, but we don't appreciate those differences. And the reason we don't appreciate them as God's design is because our hearts distort them. And so, instead of saying, this person is God's gift to me, quite different from me, by virtue of being the opposite gender, but also quite different from me by virtue of having been raised in a different environment. And rather than seeing that as a gift from God that he's going to use to make me look more like Christ as I interact in marriage with my spouse, instead of seeing it that way, we want to show the superiority of our approach. We want our spouse to know they should be more like us. We want our spouse to know that their family is a bunch of idiots. The way you were raised ain't the way it's supposed to be. Don't you see that the way my family raised me is the way it's supposed to be? And so you have two people in marriage, each of whom think they have the superior approach. And they end up trying to change the other and often belittle the other in those differences. And so we take pride in our approach to life. Males tend to, as I've already said, approach things differently than females. And so we men can say that's the superior approach. You ought to approach it that way. It ought to be task-oriented. You ought to just do it, know what you want to find, go get it. Now we're done with it. Let's move on to the next thing. God didn't say that. God made women the way he made women on purpose. And so there should be no pride in our approach, men. Likewise, gals. Men are made as men by God for his purpose. And we ought not take pride, women, in our more relational approach. Or pride in our upbringing. My family did it this way. This is what we did when we went on vacation. And look down on the things that uh, someone else was brought up with. Instead of all of that, instead of taking pride in our approach, pride in our upbringing, what God is calling us to do is to appreciate our differences and apply grace to our struggles. Appreciate our differences and apply grace to our struggles. And the truth is, we all have these different backgrounds, but we all bring from those backgrounds good and bad. And if we are going to be sanctified ourselves in, relation, in the relationship of marriage, and if we're going to help our spouse be sanctified in the relationship of marriage, we're going to have to appreciate those differences, but also apply the grace of God that's been extended to us to our spouse, to help him or her with their struggles. And every last person on earth, Every husband, every wife has those, those struggles. 
So God has made us different by design. And if we're going to flourish in those differences, then we need to see it that way, appreciate them, and then apply God's grace to the areas we struggle with. Paul is going to talk about this some more in, in Lesson 9. And so he'll elaborate on that, but it's an extremely important, important point for us. Now we're going to see Paul's DVD, page 15, are the notes for that. This is 26 minutes worth, and then we'll have uh, some brief uh, application discussion time. Let me give you a couple of passages in Scripture on love. The most famous, I'll give you two more other than this one, the most famous verse in the Bible is centered on what love is about. God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So we're all familiar with John 3.16. But... There are other passages in the Bible, many of them that speak of love. One is in 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. And it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for others. The very thing that Paul is talking about, we talked about, some last week as as well, that the cross is the model for what true love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for others. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for others. So we show love by our sacrifice for others, 1 John 3.16, but in 2 Corinthians 5.15, It's he died so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him. So I live in a sacrificial way for my spouse, for others, and yet 2 Corinthians 5.15 says we're to live for him. So which is it? Do we live for him, or do we live sacrificially for, for others? And of course that's a false dichotomy. And that is part of the point that Paul's making in his lecture. He said, you cannot love God if you don't love your spouse. And so it's not, do I love God and live for him, or do I love my spouse and live for him or her and others, but rather, I live sacrificially in love for others precisely because I'm living for God. And I love God. And that's why there are the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So you, you simply can't have the one without the other. If you take a look at page 15, the key points remind you of what Paul said in the lecture, but then you've got two discussion questions. And the first is, what's the connection between your love for God and the love you show to others? And Galatians 5, that's Paul read, says that the entire law is summed up in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as I just quoted, there's a command that comes before that. Love the Lord your God, first and foremost. But then Paul writes, Galatians 5, the entire law is summed up in loving your neighbor. Again, that's because those are absolutely connected. You can't have the one without the other. You can't say, I love God, if I don't love my neighbor. God is love, and He loves His people. And we can't show love to God without showing love to others. We simply cannot love God while we ignore, devalue, or disrespect what God loves. So that certainly includes your spouse. It includes His church. And when I say it's church, I don't mean the building, because the church is not the building. I mean the people that comprise the church. God died for those people. God loves those people. And therefore, if God, what God loves, we're to love. And we can't love God if we ignore, devalue, or disrespect what God loves. We don't have time, but just think about the implications of that about how it means we have to treat those whom God loves, our spouses, our brothers and sisters. Can we say cross words? Can we say words of slander and gossip about our spouses, about our brothers and sisters, if we love God? And God's answer is clearly no. And then you... Look at the second question, bottom of page 15. Why is real love these three things? Willing and sacrificial and unconditional. So why do we say that genuine love, real love, is willing love, it's sacrificial love, and it's unconditional love? Well, because the supreme model of love, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for others. And so the reason Paul says, rightly, real love is willing and sacrificial and unconditional is because God in Christ loved us. Willingly, sacrificially, and unconditionally. So if we say to our spouses, I love you, but we don't live with them in a willing sacrificial, unconditionally loving way, then we're not telling the truth. As Paul said, as the Bible says, we, we love. If we say, I love you, but we don't demonstrate that love the way Christ demonstrated his love for us. Now, on page 16, there's an application section. And I encourage you, individually and as a couple, to do the, the application. And it asks some questions. What things are you sometimes unwilling to sacrifice? 
in order to love your spouse? Do you experience joy when you have opportunity to sacrifice? Are you willing to love your spouse regardless of whether there's reciprocation? What could you do this week to show sacrificial love to your spouse? Now, as you consider practical ways to show love to your spouse, consider, I just give you these things to consider as we leave. When's the last time you served in a meaningful way at home for the benefit of just your spouse? Or when's the last time you spent time alone with each other in a meaningful way? Or when is the last time you gave a gift to your spouse spontaneously? When's the last time you held hands? Consider, is there a burden that you can relieve from your spouse? Something that's weighing on them, something that's difficult for them, that you could help them with. When's the last time you spoke positively about your spouse in front of others? You've heard the adage, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. But for us, it ought to be not just being neutral, not just being silent. We ought to positively say good things about our spouses, to them and about them. But we certainly should never say negative things about them to others. When is the last time you thanked your spouse? So we're just trying to give straightforward, tangible ways to put into practice what you've heard from, from Paul. So I encourage you to think about the, those application questions you see on page 16. Some things for the two of you to do and then further reading. Next week, we don't uh, meet. We'll meet in two weeks. We have three more sessions. Okay? Thanks. Dismissed.